0: Hey, this is Sean Illing. Before today's podcast, I just wanted to let you know that I'll be taking over as the full-time host of the show this fall. This past year has been great. We've learned a ton, and I am so excited to play a larger role. We'll keep bringing you the kinds of conversations you've come to expect, and hopefully much, much more. As always, thank you for listening, and stay tuned. It's me again, Sean Elling, and I'm your host for The Philosophers, a series from Vox Conversations about great thinkers and their relevance today. Stoicism is having a bit of a moment. You got podcasts, newsletters, and a lot of YouTube videos all about how the wisdom of the Stoics from the 3rd century BC can help us 21st century people live better lives. Like how can we be more productive?
1: So I wanted to talk about some productivity strategies from the Stoics, things you can apply every single day that we know the Stoics tried to apply every single day.
0: How to be a better man. I'm going to be detailing the step-by-step instructions so that you can actually start being a good man and you can get all of the benefits that the Stoic philosophy has given to us. Or even how to find peace in our busy modern world. A calm mind is a blessing in our chaotic world. If you want to achieve inner peace in a
2: healthy and non-medicated way, Stoicism has some valuable methods to offer. In this video, I will give you 7 Stoic exercises for inner peace.
0: So what is Stoicism? It's a school of thought that dates back to Zeno of Kittium in ancient Greece, and his students developed the ideas and then passed them down. It was called Stoicism because of where these dudes hung out, in Athens, by a particular corridor, or stoa in Greek. In fact, if you know the English word stoic, meaning particularly dispassionate or indifferent to pleasure and pain, then you already know a little bit about Stoic philosophy. Detachment from the passions was a major component of what the Stoics believed, along with the belief in the supremacy of our rational mind. Mastery of the self meant using reason to control one's passions, including our emotions. And for the Stoics, this was necessary, not only morally, in order to live what they would call a good life, But in order to be happy, they rejected wealth and material pleasures. In fact, Epictetus, the Greek Stoic and former slave, wrote in the first century AD that all pleasure is a kind of bait for greedy souls. The Stoics emphasized the importance of knowing your limitations. They encouraged us to meditate on our own mortality to help guide the way we lived. And as the philosophy spread from Greece to Rome in the first and second centuries AD, this became an extremely influential worldview for Roman elites and politicians like Cato and Seneca, all the way to the emperor at the top, Marcus Aurelius, who's still probably the most well-known Stoic of them all. So in Stoicism, this philosophy of self-reliance self-restraint and self-control we have an ethics that could appeal across class divides to slaves and roman emperors alike and don't get me wrong people have been interested in stoic philosophy all throughout the 20 centuries between aurelius and today but why this recent comeback my guest today is ryan holiday he's a prolific author podcaster and you actually heard his voice earlier. In fact, odds are, if you seek out a YouTube video on stoicism, he's probably gonna be the person talking to you.
1: I'm Ryan Holiday. I've written out 12 books. I've been writing about Marcus Aurelius for more than a decade. I've been lucky enough to talk about Marcus Aurelius to the NBA and the NFL, special forces, to sitting senators, to CEOs, and everyone in between. And in today's episode, Ryan is
0: definitely a leading voice in the modern day stoic revival I've been talking about but he's also an extremely careful reader and thorough student of the original sources. He knows the text of Marcus Aurelius's meditations inside and out. And I wanted to talk to Holiday for both these reasons. Not only is he able to synthesize the many fragments that survive to form the whole Stoic body of work, but he's at the center of the Renaissance. We talk about why exactly Stoicism is so attractive to people today, whether it's compatible with democratic politics, and whether Stoic philosophy can address our modern anxieties. But first, Brian tells me about how he found his way to Stoicism in the first place.
1: I was introduced to Stoic philosophy while I was in college, and it sort of became a way of thinking about and understanding the world. But I think like a lot of people, I was very attracted early on to the philosophies, very real implications for how to operate in the world as an individual. So there's a lot in stoicism about resiliency and efficiency and controlling your temper and your emotions, right? Sort of a framework for how you comport yourself as a person. And so early on in my career, I was a marketing expert that I wrote about. It. I worked for a bunch of interesting companies. Stoicism was sort of helping me amidst the craziness of my profession, but I wouldn't say it was guiding the choices that I made as a professional, right? Again, I was interested in what Stoicism primarily could do for me as a person. And I would say the evolution of Stoicism in my life over the last several years has been more discovering the other elements of the framework. Basically, as the Stoics go and get involved in politics and in the world, they get married, they have children, etc. they begin to become much more involved. And the philosophy becomes less individualistic and i I wouldn't say collective but it becomes more civic-minded i feel like i've mirrored that journey in some ways
0: i know you think of stoicism as a public philosophy yes aimed at ordinary people and everyday life and i think that's true still there is this recurring charge that it was mostly the product of elites. I guess Epictetus, a, a former slave, is, is a notable exception here. And that it remains a kind of elite obsession. Yeah. Like what do you make of this general critique? I mean, I'd say that most philosophical <laughs> traditions were produced by elites. Yes. So that charge feels pretty flat, but the implication that it's aimed at elites or useful for elites only, or mostly. That does seem pretty significant and worth tackling or refuting
1: sure. I would agree first with your contention that most good ideas come from the elites in the sense that they are the product of institutions or systems or structures that are having to think about like, what's the best way to do something, right? So stoicism like that is a product of the elites and that it's the product of the smart people from 2000 years ago. Mm. Now, the idea that stoicism only works for the elites, and, and I think this is somewhat a victim of its own recent success whereas you know it's popular with people in silicon valley it's popular with people who are professional athletes it's popular with ceos it's popular in elite circles today not because i think it only works for the elites or the only the elites have the ability to understand it or learn about it but because stoicism as a philosophy that is designed for stress and leadership and dealing with distractions and temptations, et cetera, does tend to lend itself well to a particular group. So it can seem like elite and that it's always been elite. The other way you could see about it is that most of the Stoics throughout history were men because only men were allowed to be involved in those things, right? But I would guess 40 to 50% of the readers of my books and the people I hear from on my platform are women because now women are dealing with those same issues and are like, well, nobody prepared me for this. What is the framework or philosophy I need to navigate the boardroom or the locker room or entrepreneurship or whatever? As a philosophy, one of the things I love about stoicism is the dichotomy you just brought up, which is the two most famous practitioners of stoicism. Stoicism are Epictetus, who is born a slave in Greece and comes to be owned by one of the secretaries of Nero. He's tortured, he spends 30 years of his life in slavery, but eventually becomes a philosopher. He doesn't write anything down, but his lectures survive to us. One of the attendees of his lectures is the Emperor Hadrian, and then, as it happens, Hadrian's successor, Marcus Aurelius, is given a copy of Epictetus's lectures by his philosophy teacher. And there's no philosopher that Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome, quotes more than Epictetus. To me, the proof of the philosophy and its universality is that back-to-back, its two most influential thinkers are someone of extreme privilege— and someone of extreme powerlessness or power and powerlessness, I think it works for both in that the central tenet of the philosophy is focus on what you control, focus on the response to the things that are outside of your control, do the best you can within the world that you exist. Obviously, the Roman world was a more stratified, hierarchical, less meritocratic world than we live in now. But I find that it helps me just as much as when I was a poor college student to where I am now.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is this plasticity to stoicism that makes it hard for me to get my hands around. Sometimes it feels a little zen. Sometimes it's pitched as a general self-help guide. Sometimes it's how to be more manly, the handbook for alt-right types. And as you said, sometimes it's pitched as a modern life hack. Philosophy for people in Silicon Valley. I mean, is there something about the nature of Stoicism that makes it so malleable?
1: I think so. First off, the Stoics didn't set out, or at least what survives of the Stoics, there is no, like, singular book or singular statement of principles or ideas. What survives to us, like the Zen tradition, is kind of a collection of fragments and personal attempts to apply the philosophy to one's life. So, to go back to Epictetus and Mark Aurelius, Epictetus is a teacher of Stoicism, but all that survives to us is a collection of notes from one of his students. Right, his student Arian. So we have only a set of fragments from Epictetus. Like he was asked these following questions and these were his answers. It's by no means conclusive. That influences Marcus Aurelius. What survives to us from Marcus Aurelius? It's just the journal of the most powerful man in the world writing notes to himself. And then the other most prolific and famous Stoic is Seneca. And all that survives to us from Seneca is Seneca's handful of essays and then Seneca's letters to his friend Lucilius. So part of why I think Stoicism works for us today is because of all that was lost. What's left to us is a set of fragments and ideas that I think allow us to adapt and apply it to today's life in a way that if it was something as thick as the Bible or whatever, the specificity would make it harder to adapt it to our own purposes.
0: It's often described as a bridge between ancient and the modern worlds. And I suppose that has something to do with the stoic belief that everything is just matter in motion or that reason is the highest good or reason is the ultimate guide to action. But then it's also steeped in the language of virtue and character. And that stuff goes all the way back to like Plato and Aristotle. I mean, do you think of Stoicism as a bridge philosophy in this way? Is this a useful way of understanding its history and its context? I wonder if the Stoics might take
1: issue with the argument that there is a distinction between the ancient and the modern world. Mm, What do you mean? The Stoics sort of believe that history or life it's just like the same things happening over and over and over again. Mark Aurelius writes about this in meditations that like the emperors, 10 emperors before him and 2000 years in the future, that it's just people doing the same things that they've always done. Not that there's no progress, but that fundamentally sort of human nature and world events, although we often think things are changing so rapidly and it's like history is indistinguishable from itself. So like it's two examples of this. And one of them hit me quite hard over the last couple of years. Marcus Aurelius is living through the what they call now the Antonine Plague. So Marcus Aurelius is living through a global pandemic that tests Rome in all the ways we've been tested from a health standpoint, from an economic standpoint, a culture standpoint, a leadership standpoint. And Marcus is living through that and trying to do the best he can for something that he's totally ill-equipped to deal with, that's utterly overwhelming, and it reminds human beings how fragile they are and how much they are at the mercy of great events. Now, the other example of this, going back to Epictetus, Commander James Stockdale is given a copy of Epictetus's lectures when he is a graduate student at Stanford. He's sent there by the Navy before Vietnam. and he's just reading the lectures of Epictetus, not that different than Marcus Aurelius being given the same copy. And again, he lives in the modern world. He flies a fighter jet. He's ahead head of a superpower. This great empire is fighting on the fringes of a distant land. He's shot down and he's taken prisoner. And he says to himself, as he's parachuting down into this, either imprisonment or death, he says, I am leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. But the truth is, he was always in the world of Epictetus. We live in the world of Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and Seneca right now. Seneca works in Nero's court. There is nothing in any of the Trump tell-all books that Seneca would not have been intimately familiar with and understood and said, oh, that was just like, insert experience from his own life. Yeah.
0: Well, let's get into the actual stuff of Stoicism, the lessons, the insights, the concrete things that we can use to help us navigate our lives today, which as you say, really aren't all that different. The trappings are different, the circumstances are different, but the fundamental stuff is still the same. And I'm curious what you think makes Stoicism such a uniquely maybe too strong, but I'll use it. What makes it a uniquely practical philosophy? I mean, we just did an episode on American pragmatism. And in a lot of ways, That school of philosophy seems like a descendant of Stoicism in the sense that it's not uninterested in truth. It's just more concerned with how to live in the world, with what works in the world. Is that a useful comparison for making sense of Stoicism? And Do you see Stoicism as practical in some other way?
1: Yes. I-, I would say Stoicism is very practical. I wouldn't say it's utterly uninterested. I mean, there is a whole section of Stoicism that is concerned with physics. Both the Stoics and the Epicureans were aware that the world was made up of atoms. I think, though, it's illustrative when you read the Stoics what they talk about the most. So meditations, again, Marx to it's such an interesting case because unlike essentially every other philosophy text ever published it wasn't written for publication. It's Marcus Aurelius' private philosophy workbook. To even call it a diary is to miss what it is because he's not saying today I did X, right? He's working through the issues that he's experiencing in his life through the framework of the philosophy. But the first book of meditations is really Marcus Aurelius thanking and acknowledging his debts of gratitude to all his mentors and teachers. So we put that aside and you say, what is the first, here, I'll I'll even get it for you. What is the first passage in meditations? The first thing that he opens with, right? In book two of meditations, he says, and he's writing it alongside a river in the far flung edges of the empire. But he says, when you wake up in the morning, tell yourself that people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly, right? And they are like this because they can't tell good from evil. <laughs> But I have seen the beauty of good and the ugliness of evil, and I have recognized that this wrongdoer has a nature related to my own, and so none of them can hurt me. No one can implicate me in ugliness, nor can I feel angry at my relative or hate him. We are born to work together like feet, hands, and eyes, like two rows of teeth, upper and lower, and to obstruct each other is unnatural. To feel anger at someone, to turn your back on him, these are obstructions. So, Like, what are the Stoics concerned with? It's like, how do you just wake up and deal with a world filled with difficult people? And how do you stay true to what you believe, what you think your duties and obligations are when people can feel like obstructions or disincentives to what you should be doing? And so I just love that, again, the Stoics, were not just practical and like, how do we get stuff done? But they're like, how do you go through the world and not be bitter and angry? How do you go through the world and not be like these other people that you don't want to be like? How do you just keep your wits and temper about you when you're being provoked all the time?
0: Well, one way to do that is to continually ask yourself, and this is something you talk a lot about, continually ask yourself a very important question, a question that we all need to ask, if not every day of our lives, often. And the question is, what is worth giving a shit about and what isn't? (laughs) Yes. What is the Stoic guidance here? What do they tell us to care about? What do they tell us not to care about? And how do we know the difference?
1: So Epictetus actually says that this is the primary question of life, if not philosophy. Is this up to me? So the test isn't like, should I give a shit about it? It's more a statement only give a shit about things that you can influence or control and so for the stoics it's radical narrowing of your interests your intentions your moods your reactions towards things that you have control over. This is also the root of the idea of the serenity prayer, right? Mm-hmm. To know what's in your control, to focus on the things that are in your control, and then to have the wisdom to let those other things go. Does this mean the Stoics are not concerned with social change or action? No, and we can get into the specifics of that. But it's a radical notion that, like, hey, a lot of the things that upset people, that bother people, that they spend inordinate amounts of time and energy trying to get are not up to them. And like, as an author, I think about this, right? The book that I write is largely in my control. How it's received by other people, the number of copies it sells, the critical reception, et cetera, that is largely out of my control. And to make this distinction and to say, I'm going to focus the vast majority of my time and energy and efforts towards the product itself and not hoping, yearning, praying, setting myself up for disappointment by emoting about these other things, Is a hugely important resource allocation choice.
0: Figuring out or determining what actually is in our control and what isn't, I would submit that sometimes that can be very hard to do. Of course. In practice, sometimes it can be easy, but sometimes it can be really hard, right? I mean, there are obviously things we can't control, most things we can't control. But I wonder if the instinct towards acceptance can too easily slide into passivity. Sure. Where you convince yourself that you can't resist or change something in order to justify not trying. Yes. You can see how that might be not a great thing.
1: Of course, of course. That is the tension. It's funny though, the Stoics challenge this in two ways. One, they write about it, Seneca says there's also things we can influence. There's also things that it's nice to have. He calls these preferred indifference, <laughs> like with T S, not E N C. I love that. So he says if you could choose between being tall or short, rich or poor, it's obvious which one you would choose. And if someone offers you the choice, by all means, choose the one you want. But if you're born short, to go around being upset that you're short is only going to make you more miserable on top of the inconveniences of the biological fate that you've been handed. But I wrote a book a few years ago called Lives of the Stoics, where I decided to spend less time thinking about what the Stoics said. And more time on like who they were, what they did as human beings. And I think this is really important because it shows that as much as the Stoics say, talk about, hey, is this in my control? Is it not? The Stoics were almost, as a rule, engaged in politics. And not just engaged in politics in the sense of like, we inherited this thing and we're the ruling class, so it's how it's going to be. But we're often radicals in politics. Julius Caesar finds that Cato is the head of what we would now call the resistance, right? He's his primary obstacle. There's a whole class of Stoics sort of after Cato, after Rome ceases to be a republic and becomes an empire, where the Stoics are these sort of perpetual thorns in the side of the emperor, and they're sort of termed the Stoic opposition. And they fight tooth and nail, even though they're hopelessly outmatched, even though their chances of success are very low. They sort of fight tooth and nail for principle, and many of them give their lives. It is possible that saying, hey, I only focus on what I control could lead to apathy. But in practice, the best Stoics have found that there is a lot in their control and that if one is talented and aggressive and intentional and courageous, which is a key Stoic virtue, the virtue of courage, if one is courageous, there's actually a big difference you can make in the world if you choose to put yourself out there.
0: Yeah, and I guess that the dangers of apathy or resignation are those are just always concerns for me in part because they're temptations for me in my own life that I'm constantly on guard against. It's like, for example, Seneca says, poverty isn't having little, it's wanting more. (laughs) It's like, I get that. Like there is wisdom there. But, but poverty is also not having enough to live and in a society, this wealthy people shouldn't die of hunger. And I think it's just always important to recognize that it's not always bad luck, like there are real injustices and the feeling of lack or the feeling of deprivation is not always like a mentality problem. And there's a certain kind of maybe crude, stoic enthusiast type who can maybe lose sight of that. Not you, but I feel like it is a place you can get to if you're not sufficiently aware. Well, here's what's so interesting about that, though.
1: In Seneca's time, it wasn't just a belief that, like, you really couldn't do anything about poverty. They had a system in which it was more or less impossible to change one's class or rank in the world, right? Cicero is this exceptional figure who's considered a new man that he made himself, even though even he was, you know, a descendant of rich parents. But... This idea that poverty is a solvable problem, that you can create a dynamic society, you can have an economic system, that the choices that people and governments make can change situations. This was inconceivable in the ancient world. Like Marcus Aurelius, he's chosen to be emperor. It's not his father who's emperor. He's chosen to be emperor. Nowhere in his writings does he seem to have any sense that you don't have to work a job that you don't like right? Like, these were inconceivable notions. And why are they conceivable notions now? It's because people decided it actually was something you could control, and they changed the world, right? They made a dent in the universe. It changed the direction of things. And, you know, when I read, for instance, that ancient Greece and Rome were slave societies, I found it interesting, not only does Marcus Aurelius never question slavery, but it doesn't seem like Epictetus questioned slavery either.
0: The former slave.
1: Yes, so it's a reminder to us that sometimes the things we think are not in our control, that we can't change, it's only because someone hasn't challenged us in that regard, Right, where they were and where we are now is a reminder that we do have the power to change things, that new ideas, new ways of thinking, new inventions can change the course of human history. And you could knock the Stoics in that regard, or you can say they were victims of a society that had not yet created the innovation or ideas that allowed us to make that progress. One of the credits to the Stoics is Musonius Rufus, who's Epictetus's teacher. Not only does he teach Epictetus, who's a slave, which is, I think, somewhat progressive idea, he's like, hey, what is this weird distinction we're making between men and women when it comes to virtue? Virtue is not a gendered thing. Virtue is also attractive and pleasing and edifying on a woman. And so he says that men and women should be taught philosophy which seems like a minor innovation, but was in fact a major innovation. And so I don't want the Stoics to be associated with this sort of static approach to the world, because not only do they personally disprove it, I feel like if they were alive today, right, they would see the changes that we've made and it would open their minds to changes that were inconceivable then, if that makes sense.
0: It does, and I'm glad you've alluded to this a couple of times, because there is this criticism that stoicism is too removed from the world of others, from the political world, that the emphasis on acceptance obscures this imperative that we all have to confront and remake the world, right? Epictetus says to not spend our feelings on things beyond our power. But what's in our power, not as individuals, but as a community, As a collective that's less clear and i can see the appeal of stoicism in a moment in which people feel powerless or when inequalities are growing or whatever and maybe if you're looking for a political philosophy or a philosophy that will inspire collective action maybe stoicism isn't where you should look but i actually suspect you may disagree with that and i'd love to hear why if that's the case
1: I do. I do disagree with it. I mean, I see the temptation and I certainly see the history where that may have been the case. I'll give you an example here. There's an interesting passage in Meditations at the beginning where Marcus says... He's thanking a man named Severus. He says, From Severus, I learned to love my family, truth, and justice. It was through him that I encountered Thracia, Helvidius, Cato, Dion, and Brutus—these would be members of the Stoic opposition—and conceived of a society of equal laws, governed by equality of status and of speech, and of rulers who respect the liberty of their subjects above all else. So I think politically, the Stoics had a conception, not unlike the founders of a world that was better than the one they were in. The trouble has always been getting from theory to practice. Mm -hmm. And how do we get from theory to practice? By being involved, by putting oneself out there. I sort of push back on this sort of stoic apathy argument as a fun example is like, Thomas Jefferson dies with a copy of Seneca on his nightstand although he was shamefully accepting of an institution like slavery, he also radically reconceives the role of government and what government can do and should do by founding a new nation. So there is this tension in Stoicism. Again, sometimes we think we can change something, sometimes we can't. I think the Stoics don't ever speak of the idea of collective action but they were military leaders. They were politicians somewhere in the public, somewhere in the empire. They clearly understood that human beings had a power when they came together and did things together. They just don't speak about it enough. I think voting is a good example of this tension, right? It's like individually, your vote doesn't matter at all. You make no statistical difference But if everyone thought that way, where would we be, right? And we're living right now through a presidential administration that was decided by like 30,000 votes across a handful of states. And so individually, it doesn't seem like we matter, but collectively, we objectively do matter.
0: We're going to be right back with more from my conversation with Ryan Holiday after a short break. Support for the Great area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, When you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. There is something I was thinking about a lot when I was preparing for this conversation, this fascinating relationship between Stoicism and Eastern philosophy. In so many ways, Stoicism strikes me as a very distinctly Western counterpart to Buddhism, where Buddhists say we should let go of the illusion of selfhood. And for Stoics, it's all about self-mastery and self-control and self-reliance. But they both seem to aim at the same thing, which is some kind of healthy acceptance of the limits of our condition. Is this a juxtaposition or a relationship you've thought much about?
1: It is. I think they're remarkably similar. And it heartens me that like two different schools that basically don't interact until the modern era could independently converge on similar ideas, similar understandings, and similar insights. I love that. I use the word convergent. It does remind me of convergent evolution, right? Bats and birds can both fly. They don't really share a common ancestor. They're just both responding to the pressures of their environment and evolution and, of course, also random chance, but that they end up in kind of similar but totally different places. I think, to me, that's some evidence of truth that they're independently arriving on similar conclusions, but not having started with the same first principles. I don't know. I I really like that. And I like this idea that the Stoics would have, had they known about the Zen Buddhists, if they were alive today, would take everything they like and incorporate it as their own and leave the stuff that they don't like. And I think it would be true the other direction also. So the idea that wisdom is wisdom, whether it comes from the East or West, if you
0: can use it, if it makes you better, if it makes you more virtuous, take it. But what is the stoic vision of happiness? You know, I know there's this stoic idea that we shouldn't look to someone's material conditions to judge whether or not they're happy, which of course is very easy to say when you're eating from a well-fed table. Yeah, But like, obviously material conditions matter, but like, what does it mean to be truly happy for a stoic? If it's not about material comfort, if it's not about power or wealth or whatever, what is it that makes a person happy, truly happy.
1: Yeah, I think the Stoics don't do a great job saying, here's what happiness is. They don't do a great job defining their terms. But sometimes when you hear something, you're like, that's it. One of the great expressions from Zeno, the founder says, he says, the smooth flow of life. And to me, that's a great way of describing happiness, where it's not that you have necessarily eliminated all external disturbances, but You are in a place where you're adaptable and flexible. This is where I think acceptance comes in as an important component of happiness. The Stoics talk about the smooth flow of life that comes when one lives with virtue and in accordance with nature. So I don't know, when I think of moments that I'm happy, it's usually when I'm sort of doing my job well, like I'm making a positive contribution to the world. It's when I've eliminated the inessential things from life, right? Caring what other people think, pointless obligations, busyness, trivia, gossip, anger, et cetera. And the third part I would say is usually when I'm with people I love, and I'm outside, right? So again, I'm not giving you the perfect sort of one-sentence definition, but I think there is something about a natural life, a life focused on what is essential, a life built around duty and ethics, and then ultimately adapting and finding a way to get close to that even when, as the Stoics were, you're thrown in prison or you're thrown to the top of the heap, as Marcus Aurelius was, whether you're born in slavery or thrown into exile, are you able to kind of get to those first principles, that place of ataraxia, as the Stoics call it, where you're doing what you should be doing? Aristotle's idea of eudaimonia, human flourishing, I think is probably closer to the Stoics' definition of happiness than, say, like, pleasure or success or these other things might be according to other schools.
0: Yeah, see, like, I've never known what it really means to live in accordance with nature. What does that mean? Like swimming naked in like some hot springs somewhere. That's awesome. Like it's rad. I I highly recommend it. Like that's living in accordance with nature, right? Day to day. What does it really mean to live in accordance with nature? Because what is natural is not exactly a, a agreed upon concept.
1: That's right. And then also, you know, where does living in accordance with nature get you into, say, the naturalistic fallacy of just because something is natural doesn't mean that it's good. Yeah. And there's kind of note when you see it. But you meet someone and every second of their day is scheduled. They have more than they could possibly need. They are utterly dependent on approval and adulation. They are addicted or consumed by pleasure, right? I think you're very easily able to see what is not natural very quickly. And perhaps we can define living in accordance with nature, or we know it when we see something that is obviously unnatural or superfluous. I've often thought about it that way.
0: Is there a simple definition of success for a good, Stoic? I mean, I think it would be sort
1: of playing the role that life has handed to you well. Mm-hmm. Epictetus says that we're all actors in a play, that we're not the director, that there's actors in the play. And can you play that role well? I think Epictetus does impossibly well as a slave turned freeman. Mark Aurelius does incredibly well as emperor. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever circumstances have led up to where you are in life, I think success is like, did you do that as well as it could be done?
0: I think I might throw my lot in with the existentialists here who say, no, 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 define your own role or redefine your role over and over and over again. But I take the point.
1: Yes. And I I would agree with that as well. I mean, it would have been wonderful for Marcus and Epictetus to live in a society where they had more freedom over who and what they did. And we have that freedom. It presents with it its own set of problems, right? Because now you have a lot more choice. Your class, it doesn't tell you what you have to do tomorrow and who you're supposed to marry and where you have to live. You get to make all those choices, which is wonderful. But also, I suppose, means you could do it wrong.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you about this notion of memento mori, this idea that we should remember that death is inevitable, mm-hmm. that it's always looming over everything that we do do, and that that knowledge should guide our life somehow. I mean, why is this so central to so many of the Stoics, this, you know, keeping death near?
1: I think that actually ties into what you were just asking about. Again, we yeah. can sort of know it when we're the opposite of it. But this world in which you only die in a hospital bed, you're more or less guaranteed to live till you're 80. Maybe you go through your whole life never seeing or even knowing somebody who died, is about as unnatural in existence as any era of the human species has ever experienced, and certainly compared to our brethren animals, utterly unnatural. I'll give you an example. I live on this little farm outside Austin, and we came home two weeks ago, and a pack of wild dogs had just eviscerated two of my pet goats that I've had for 10 years. I would say this devastated my wife and I far more than it devastated the other goat who was also wounded but did not die. There's a D.H. Lawrence poem where he says, never would you see a bird sorry for itself. Death has always been an ever-present part of existence. And yet, even then, Marcus is reminding himself, hey, you could go at any moment. He says, you could leave life right now, let that determine what you do and say and think." The Stoics, I think, practice memento mori not to be morbid, and it's not even a sort of detachment. It's, to me, a reminder of who's really in control, which is to say, not you, and to live and treat people accordingly. So Marcus Aurelius, learning from Epictetus, because he cites Epictetus in this example, supposedly said that even as you tuck your children in at night, You should practice this, that like you might not make it till the morning, that they might not make it until the morning. You know, they say uh, no parent should ever bury a child. Marcus buries eight children. Like, just try to wrap your head around the devastation of that. Can't do it. It's incomprehensible that a human could endure that, but he does. And I don't think he endures it because. He doesn't care about his children, that he's gotten to this place of sage-like indifference. And in fact, in several parts of meditations, you can kind of feel the heartbreak of it. To me, the purpose of that exercise is, and I did it last night as I tucked my kids in, it's, wait, why am I telling you that I won't read you one more book? Yeah. Why am I trying to get this over as quickly as possible? Why am I rushing through this? Why am I getting frustrated? What is better or more important than this moment in front of me. And I think that's a form of happiness also. The ability to actually be present, to be in the experience you are in, you know, the Zen idea of, can you be happy washing the dishes? But can you be where you are in that moment is, to me, one of the the ultimate places you can reach philosophically.
0: Right. And that reminds me of the line by Aurelius, right? That the happiness of your life depends upon the quality of your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And this idea, again, very Buddhist, that our happiness, our, our well-being, whatever word you want to use, turns on our judgments about the things that happen to us and not on the external events themselves. I mean there's that cynical quote that we suffer more in imagination than in reality. Yes. Which I love. Like I'm a catastrophizer man. Sure. When things go wrong, my instinct is to like imagine hundred other things that can go wrong that almost certainly will go wrong whereas my wife is always like let's just pause and think about like constructive things we can do and I'm like still stewing and like all the shit that I think might happen or feeling like a victim really like I'm really just throwing a tantrum yeah very unstoic. like (laughs) I don't know man look you're now my stoic guru so like what am I supposed to do (laughs) in those moments what is someone who listening who can relate to that supposed to do when they start like slipping into that woe is me and whatever that whole mode
1: what i love about meditations is the sense that marcus is doing precisely that yeah that marcus is an anxious person a frustrated person a catastrophizer sees the worst sometimes and there's this great passage where he says today i escaped anxiety then he catches himself and he says no I discarded my anxiety because it was within me. And the pandemic was illustrated for me in this sense where obviously the pandemic caused a lot of anxiety for a lot of us, but it also eliminated a lot of the things that we used to blame our anxiety on. Suddenly you're not getting on an airplane. You're not commuting to work. You're not doing this or that. You're just sitting at home at your house and you're still fucking anxious. You're still anxious. Because you are the source of the anxiety, not the external world. And realizing that the anxiety is something you are bringing to this equation, that you are choosing to indulge or engage, is to me a profound insight. Not unlike the Buddhist insight that you can have a thought and not identify with that thought, that you don't have to accept your thoughts. They simply are. I would state that and put it there and then add something that Seneca talks about, which is that... Your tendency to think about what could happen is not the worst thing in the world. And then, in fact, although anxiety is not good, preparation and awareness is quite good. So Seneca says, of course, we suffer more in imagination than reality. But he also is a proponent of what he calls negative visualization, the idea of thinking what could happen. And you think about Seneca's life. He's effectively exiled twice. He loses a child, multiple family members and then is sentenced to death by the emperor. If he was just going through the world, everything's amazing, everyone loves me, I control all this, those would have all been a number of rude, unpleasant experiences. But by preparing for them, by thinking about them, he says, we take the power of it away. He says, the unexpected blow lands heaviest. So it's a tension between awareness and anxiety, for sure.
0: Okay, well, Next time my wife calls me a catastrophizer, I'm just going to tell her I'm preparing mentally for the future. So carry on.
1: Seneca says the only inexcusable thing that a leader can say is, I did not think that would happen.
0: Yeah. Is it possible, Brian? Do you think that Stoicism asks too much? of like the ordinary person, you know, that like most of us, most of the time are not able to deal with the world with such equanimity. I guess this is really a a way of asking, do they elevate reason over emotion in a way that just doesn't map onto reality, right? Do they underappreciate the power, the role of passions? They say all the time that we ought to live according to our nature, as we were just talking about, or to nature itself. But then they seem to think, maybe correctly, but they seem to think that our emotions are some kind of like pathology, like some kind of break from nature. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe there's some truth in that, but damn, it sure is complicated, right?
1: <laughs> I would say that every philosophical school or religious tradition demands more of us than we are capable of. Yeah, fair. Christianity demands that we turn the other cheek. Zen Buddhism demands that we find meaning in our suffering, that we follow the Eightfold Path. Like, it's all impossible, right? And this is why there's like a handful of figures who have even conceivably claimed to have reached some form of enlightenment. Epictetus says we do not abandon our principles for despair of breaching them. Basically, that we don't give up just because it's impossible. But in fact, we accept that it's impossible and we just try to approach it, right? We just try to get close. So I think that's the idea. And You can't miss this when you're reading meditations. There's one passage where he's like, you're an old man. You've been doing this your whole life, and you're still afraid of death. You're still losing your temper. He knows that he's not anywhere close to where he wants to be. Now, is he still being too hard on himself? Potentially, yes. One of my favorite lines from Seneca, he says, how do I know that I'm making progress in this philosophy? It's that I've become a better friend to myself. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a harshness to Stoicism, and that's certainly its reputation as sort of a harsh, unforgiving, impossible ideal. But the Stoics also spoke kindly to each other, to themselves. I think they understood that it was a journey that if you're better than where you were when you started, you count that as a huge success. And when I think about where I was at 19 and then where I am now today, I can see an enormous amount of progress. And yet I also lost my temper at my son who was hitting his brother this morning on our walk, right? So am I anywhere close to arriving at it? No. Is reason this sort of magical tool that can solve all your problems? No, I don't think so. Have we made other breakthroughs psychologically, neurologically, medicinally since the Stoics? Yes. And should we also avail ourselves of those? I have no problem with that. But I would definitely dispute the notion that the Stoics thought perfection was possible and that even perfection was the goal.
0: Yeah, you know, it's like, there's no doubt real peace to be found in accepting the things that we can't control. But yeah, it's just so hard to do when that darkness (laughs) descends, you know? Like, I know Aurelius, some modern Stoic would say to me, for example, you know, like a couple of years ago when my mom passed away, he or she would say you know like don't think of it as though someone has been taken from you like instead remember that your mom's presence in the first place was a gift and that you're lucky to have been born at all and okay but damn still sad that's a tall order you know and like the classicist uh, tad brennan up at cornell like it's like the stoic sage is some kind of ethical super being it is asking a lot of us but you have a really good point right i mean (laughs) so is turning the other cheek they all ask too much of us
1: There's a story about Marcus Aurelius as a young man. He loses his favorite philosophy teacher. We don't know who it is, but his teacher dies. And this story comes to us that Marcus is crying. He's weeping over the loss of this person that he loved. And one of his other teachers, it sounds like it was one of the stoic teachers, goes up to him to like reproach him and say, you're not being very stoic. And Antoninus, Marcus Aurelius's adopted stepfather, the man that he looks up to more than anyone, stops him and he supposedly says, let him cry, philosophy nor empire takes away natural feelings. Mm. And I love this because he certainly respects what Marcus studies and certainly gives him space to study it, but he also gives him space to be a human being and to grieve. Two of Seneca's most beautiful essays are consolations. He writes one to the daughter of a friend who had died, and then he writes another one to his own mother when Seneca is exiled. And you really get the sense that Seneca's talking to himself also about what he's lost and about the pain that he's feeling. But I don't think studying philosophy can turn you into this superhero. You can aspire towards getting better, but the idea that you're just not gonna have these emotions, that you can rationally stop yourself from being sad or angry, I think is probably naive. I do think, and I've experienced it in my own life, and certainly you've witnessed it with other people, is you can get to a place where there is a difference between being angry and doing things out of anger. Hmm. The distinction between acting on said emotion or grieving for a week and 10 years, that starts to become more in our control. I don't know exactly where the line is, but if someone insults you, no amount of training is going to prevent that from stinging. But if you're still stewing about it a year later, I would say that's on you.
0: But do you think you could make a case that emotion is more natural than reason? That reason is a pure human construct that we use to paper over this thing we call emotions, right? That that's the artifice, you know? I mean, Is it possible that maybe the Stoics, by trying so hard and maybe with very good reasons to suppress or conquer our emotions, that maybe they miss something like fundamentally true and natural and important to what it means to be a human being?
1: I think that I would say that the Stoic view is that emotion and reason were both given to us, and that one is there to counterbalance out the other. Now, you could dispute that, but I think they saw reason as a gift, not as an emotion, in the same way that justice is a counterbalance to injustice and courage to cowardice, etc. That reason is the counterbalance to emotion. But in the opening of meditations, again, I think what's so lovely about the Stoics is that the more you study them, the more depth you find. Marcus says that his goal that he learns from one of his teachers is to be free of passion, but full of love. Now, love is certainly an emotion, right? And so maybe this is some distinction that you start to understand the more you get into it. But I do love the idea of like, oh, okay, the idea is not to be angry or full of lust or fear or ambition but that love, empathy, kindness is an emotion that is healthy. So maybe what we're really talking about is a distinction between constructive and destructive emotions. And I think that would be harder to dispute.
0: Okay, we're going to take one last break, but stay with us for the rest of my conversation about stoicism with Ryan Holiday right after this. I'm pretty fortunate to do a show like this where I get to have conversations like this. I get to read great books and absorb lots of wisdom about how to live. But sure. I'm continually failing in the most trivial ways in my own life, like all of us. And it's completely deflating. You know, it's that old timeless tension that you mentioned earlier between knowing and doing. Since Stoicism is so much about the doing, what are some practical Techniques for self control that have been handed down to us from the Stoics? I mean, what sorts of exercises or, or practices did they adopt? Have you adopted in your life that helped to implement this philosophy in our actual lived experience?
1: I mean, if you think about what meditations is, it's Marcus Aurelius having a discussion with himself about these ideas by hand on paper or tablet or whatever it was. I think in the way that meditation is inseparable from Zen, I would say journaling and stoicism are equally inseparable. So some element of working through the ideas, working through the reason, letting that part of yourself work on your more sort of immediate reaction to things is probably as close as they come. I mean, I think memento mori is a practice we're talking about. There's a bunch of these different ones. But I really think the process of having an ongoing written conversation with yourself is the primary stoic practice.
0: Yeah, I think it was Seneca who warns about the obsession we tend to have with accomplishment. You know, we just go, go, go achieve for the sake of achievement. And we often do it at the expense of our time, which is the most valuable thing in our lives. And I suppose this is a good place to end with this idea that enough is enough. Mm -hmm. What would Seneca or any other great Stoic say to someone who is having a hard time appreciating what they have?
1: Yeah, I think uh, actually Seneca quoting Epicurus says, enough is never enough
0: for those
1: to whom enough is too little, Mm -hmm. which is a delightful little expression. I think his point is that Your time is the only non-renewable resource, yet we seem to protect money and property more than time. And he says, there's no sadder sight than the old man still pleading cases before the bar or running for public office or trying to make more money. He's talking about Marius, one of the great, although not good and not decent, Roman leaders. He says, Marius commanded armies but ambition commanded Marius. And his point is that how often ambition becomes the tail wagging the dog. We're not in charge. And Epictetus, who's in the same court as Seneca, so maybe he even sees Seneca, sort of comes to this realization. He's walking around this beautiful palace filled with all these powerful people who own human beings like him. And I think he's struck by the thought that he's freer than a lot of these people that he has more control over his urges, his mind, perhaps even his time than these very rich, very powerful people who need more and more and more. And so the understanding that there's different forms of slavery and and that a lot of us are slaves to sex or ambition or power or money or relevance or audience or work or whatever it is, I think is a sobering reminder. And it ties into what we were talking about earlier, which is you only get one go at this thing and you don't get to take the stuff that you made with you when you die. And so you got to have some perspective about all that.
0: Well, this has been a lot of fun. I've learned so much from your books. I've really come to enjoy your podcast, The Daily Stoic. I highly recommend it to everyone listening. Ryan Holiday, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Stay tuned for a new episode of the Philosopher Series coming next month, right here in the Vox Conversations feed. So make sure you're subscribed. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. The Philosopher Series theme music was composed by Eric Janikis. And Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you liked the show, if you didn't like the show, we wanna hear about it. So let us know what you think of this new series by emailing voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, seriously, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.